All right, everybody. So we have Dr. Scott Stevenson with us today. Um, I've talked with Scott for years now, and I've kind of said to a number of people that he is one of the smartest, if not the smartest individual I've spoken to in this field. So, Scott, it's a pleasure to have you on today. Well, the check's in the mail, man. <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah, just just continually learning. I managed to retain a little bit of it, so it, it helps. And you have both a master's and a Ph.D. in exercise physiology, correct? Yep, I do. As well as being an ASCM certified and NSCA certified? Oh, you're looking at, you must have looked up my bio. Yeah, I have those, I have those certifications still. It's yeah. good for liability insurance for sure. That was, gosh, that was in the 90s when I did those yeah. certifications. Yeah. Tax the resume. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's funny because I, I hadn't really thought of it, but I've got a graduate certificate in gerontology. I really have a fondness for working for older folks with older folks just because you know, this doesn't show up necessarily in my bodybuilding persona online, but. It, such a potential way to help people with exercise. Sure. And I'm a licensed acupuncturist too, so that's a whole other kind of tangent that we probably won't yeah. go into today, but yeah, so, um, I put those things ahead of the ACSM and, and, uh, um, that other, the other certification, so. Um, and so for today's charity, you had mentioned one that kind of is for like an animal shelter, correct? Yeah, um, it was, there's a woman by the name of Linda Dills. Uh, she runs Tucson Cold Wet Noses, which is just a, um, uh, an adoption agency back in Tucson. And I don't know if I mentioned this to you. There was someone who contacted me who had lost a, uh, cat on their way through Arizona. And they remembered that I lived there and he actually lost the cat in Phoenix. I lived in Tucson and I said, well, I'll try to help you out. I contacted Linda because I'd stayed in contact with her just somehow, and I knew she was pretty active on Facebook. And they put the feelers out, and the guy ended up getting his cat back. He had to leave Phoenix. He was on his way, I think, from, like, Seattle to Texas. But that was just, like, one example of the really the super impressive work that they do. This is one of the positive things with Facebook and social media. Yeah. Literally, they have this incredibly connected network of people who will – gather the resources and put the feelers out and, you know, post in local areas. And when they need to, for instance, pull an animal out of a shelter, what have you, they'll say, okay, we got an animal in Northern California. We need to get it to LA because there's an adopter who will take the dog or foster the dog. Um, I can, the dog needs to be out by tomorrow before 9am. Okay, good. I can pull the dog at 8am. These are all people who didn't even really, they don't know each other personally, but they'll coordinate this all through Facebook. And it's, I've seen this happen where there's like an emergency to save an animal or to find an animal like that. And Linda is one of those people who does that kind of stuff among thousands of others. And it's really just really cool. So I think they, they deserve, um, as much as much funding and help as they can get because they're, they're saving lots and lots of animals and awesome. the quality of life for humans. So, and do they have a page that we'll be able to link as well? Yeah, they have a Facebook. They have a, actually a URL, a web website, and a um, a Facebook page. Okay, uh, those in there. Awesome. And uh, you know, we when we had first started talking about doing this interview, uh, the Olympia was pretty much about to happen. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that briefly. Um, what do you think? Oh, uh, I don't know if that's been beat to death or not. Have you talked about that with a lot of folks already? Not really, actually. Maybe like okay. One. I think. I mean, it, it's funny because. There's been so much sort of drama that have, that has come about yeah. in the loss. And I guess, you know, I guess one thing I can maybe I can interject that I haven't heard anyone mention is that um, 
and I don't mean to be negative about it, but it's interesting that we've got um, a Mr. Olympia who now is lost, and that's that's happened in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Ronnie lost his title, so to speak, and Jay Cutler lost his title, so to speak, relatively recently, and and now Phil has lost, and that was really pretty unexpected. And there's been all this crazy mayhem that's evolved and come about since then. I, I don't. It's it's a different phenomenon that we've had before, and and I think it's pretty it's rightfully so that that um that uh that Phil didn't win this year. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He just and and even um Sean Ray said this, and I thought this was the truth as well. His midsection mm-hmm. just just simply was it was too glaring there. He was just unable to control it. I don't know that it's I don't know how much of it's a function of his uh, surgical procedure. You probably heard some. Some of that, you know, I, yeah. he mentioned that, and there was never a whole lot of clarity there, at least enough for me to say, okay, I, this makes sense. Right, right. But but still, abdominal control is huge. Right. And, you know, over the course of, of years of trying to eat enough food to maintain the muscle mass that he has, you just have a food baby, right. um, as it's known. And I, I liken it to being sort of mildly pregnant, you know, <laughs> for much of the year. And so that that musculature, the connective tissue, the rectus abdominis, and the um, transversus abdominis, all those, all that musculature will slowly expand and lengthen. And we cast a, cast first, cast your arm with your biceps, your your elbow flexors at a shortened position. The connective tissue will restructure itself. And when you come out of that cast, it takes quite a while to be able to strengthen that, lengthen that arm out again, stretch the biceps out again. So same thing is going to hold true when you've got someone who's maybe not done the posing they should have done or not basically practiced, learned neurologically how to keep the abdominal musculature flat and keep the weight small and thinking they can just kind of do that. And Steve posed the bejesus out of those guys, too. He posed them really hard. And there was one point, I'm trying to remember if it was the prejudging or the finals, there was one point when I think they come, came back out, and I think that Phil probably had some water. Mm-hmm. He probably thought he was good to go, and the people who were listening who were competing will see this. This is another really interesting physiological thing where if you've really dehydrated yourself to be dry on stage and you haven't had any water to drink, sometimes you just have that first, it could be like a half a glass of water, and you'll start to sweat. Yeah. Like that. And you, step, you have to pee as well. Yeah. I mean, you're, there's not much necessarily in your bladder, but it's like all of a sudden, and this is really cool. I mean, I don't even know what, what neural networks are involved with this, but it's pretty, pretty, um, it's pretty amazing because this has happened to me numerous times. And I think he probably went backstage, let them go off stage now, had a little bit of water. And when he came back out, he was sweating, like yeah. literally and figuratively. Yeah. Uh, and they worked him so hard that he didn't have the abdominal musculature control between poses and during some of the poses. And that just it just distracts the judge's eyes, even, um, you know, even if it's uh, uh, just a small part of the time when you keep on seeing that, basically it, it influences their overall perspective of the physique. And then, you know, there's sure. you're just going downhill at some point. Yeah, so. it, uh, the whole abdominal control thing always fascinates me because as somebody who, you know, um, I don't know, like a ton of pro bodybuilders, so you would have a much better insight uh, um, than I would, but it just seems like how could they not just keep it in as like a normal person? It's like, couldn't you just hold it in? Like, how is it that far out? But I guess they truly just can't bring it in. It's, it's hard to imagine that at all that effort that they're putting in with everything else they do, they can't just bring it in a few inches during a pose. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's the whole idea of the the roid gut, so to speak. You know, the um, increased organ size from the combination of growth hormone and and insulin and maybe steroids. But and but I that's why I call it a food baby. I really think that a lot of it comes from just having distended abdominal musculature. And I know people who have gotten really really big and they're full all the time. Yeah, they may have a gut dysbiosis. Um, it may be simply you're just constantly putting food through all the time, and, yeah. and there may be a partially impacted colon, or there's just a lot of food and a lot of poop in in the uh, in the colon, literally yeah. in the large intestine. And like I said, so that musculature is constantly extended like that, and you can't you can hold that in, but you also have to breathe, and it's it's very very difficult to learn how to um, just breathe by expanding your rib cage. And not do diaphragmatic breathing, yeah. where your your abdomen comes out, which is what you normally would do. And plus, the the day of you're on you're at, you're on stage, you're dehydrated, you're exhausted, you're tired. So you're literally you know at your wits end to some degree in many many cases. Sometimes you feel good, but a lot of times you don't feel all that good. Right. So so if you haven't like literally brought yourself to a really, really fatigue, practice again and again in that really, really fatigued place where, you, where you're breathing like a locomotive because posing is really, really tough. It's very, yeah. very hard. If you haven't done that, then it's extraordinary. You just can't turn that on the day of the show. And I think a lot of guys are thinking, you know, oh, I can just suck it up the day of the show. You know, I can just make it happen. And it's just too much. It's just too difficult. And you know, like there are stories of like like one of the best of this at all time was Lee Labrada, mm-hmm. and you can watch some of his him posing and and even the you know it's part of the I think the judging may even cause this to a certain degree in that they allow people to go off stage that wasn't something that used to happen many many years ago so like you you come for a call out and then you'd have to file off to the side and. A lot of times you're, you have to stand there, you know, in, in your front relaxed pose. You should. Yeah. Because judges are, the judges may be thinking, okay, this guy in this last call out, do I need to compare him with this guy who's on stage now actually actively posing? They're right. looking over and they're like making this comparison. So like you, you feel lucky if you just happen to be at the back of the stage where you can kind of hide. Yeah. But now they let guys walk off and get water. And that's good, you know, so they don't cramp up and they don't, you know, medically speaking. But it also gives you the perception that, uh, you know, I, I just have to make it through the mandatories and then I can stop and go backstage, put my hands on my knees, you know, rest, have some water, what have you. And that didn't used to happen like a, a decade ago. I used to never, never see that. It was just sort of like these are the rigors opposing. It was actually part of what the judges want to see. Right. And when you, yeah, yeah. And, and they don't really do that so much. In amateur competitions, sometimes national level, I've seen some judges do that. I've seen it happen a couple times. It's a whole other topic where literally they just took a call out off stage and they never bring it back, yeah. which is which is silly because you need to recompare people potentially. Mm-hmm. But so then the guys are like, I'm going to have to be up there as long as they want to run me through, and I'm going to have to be holding those front relaxed poses. And you have to have done that. I, I suggest people – and this is actually we're going to talk about maybe in my book a little bit today, but one of the things that I suggest people do a lot of times is make sure you practice perfect posing as best you possibly can, but it also needs to be basically sort of sport specific. 
in a sense. And in a bodybuilding sense, I mean, you don't want to dehydrate yourself every time you want to pose, but you want to be as tired as you possibly can make it. So if you've had a really just tough training uh, training session, <clears throat> and your last thing you want to do is pose, that's when you should try to pose. As yeah. long as you don't do it sloppily, because then you're just practicing sloppy posing. Right. But if you can get yourself to run through the mandatories, you know, two or three times, and just make them brutal after you've trained like that, then when you get up on stage and you've just pumped up enough to get the effect you want to look pumped up on stage, but you haven't just trained legs, or yeah. you haven't put in a two-hour training session, then you have an advantage. So those guys who only train when they feel fresh or, like, I mean, a lot of guys, you can you can tell a lot of guys just train in their in their bathroom mirror <laughs> because where they look best and they don't yeah. ever, like, put you want to put yourself in that worst – in that worst situation, like crappy lighting where you feel awful so that when you finally are di- dieted down and you're really in, in it, you know, you look good in any lighting and you can pose and the poses look awesome no matter how tired you are and you can hold them without looking stressed, then you've got it. Sure. And, and the judges, especially the hardcore ones, the old school guys and, and women, they'll be like, I see that guy suffering on stage, like he didn't put in the work. Yeah. And I don't like that a whole, it's like, I think there's a, there's an unconscious, maybe a conscious psychological effect. You see, um, someone like Sean, you know, who's up there and, and he looks, you know, phenomenal. Right. And he's holding his poses. His abs are small. He's calm, cool, relaxed and collected. And, and the guy next to him is sweating. His, his abs are distended. That has an impact. One guy might look better. It's like, this guy looks like he hasn't practiced his posing at all, and this right. guy looks like he put in some major time yeah. uh, doing this. And that's presentation. It's a subjective sport. So that aspect of presentation is important as how you actually hit the poses themselves, I think. Uh, yeah, so, I, he was very confident up there for sure. I, he yeah. knew that the win was coming. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, He predicted it, I guess, too. Yeah. Um, you had touched a little bit there on, you know, this recommendation in your book, and I'm, I know this was years in the making. Um, so you and I had started talking with you more directly about three years ago when Fortitude Training had come out. Um, right. I had seen your, you know, I had seen you on forums and everything for many years before that. And so, you know, what has really changed in your knowledge from, you know, even from Fortitude Training to now? Like, I mean, obviously this is a much larger book, uh, but what were some of the real insights that you gained in that time in the last three years well i know you started writing the book three years ago so let's say insights that caused you to want to write this book ah that's a that's a different question that's yeah that's probably one of my kind of my favorite topics um well the title of the book says a lot and i don't know that i've actually even explicitly said this before but there was something that i used to um and I still would and still will when I teach again. I'm sure I'll teach again at a college level at some point in time. But I always, when I was teaching graduate level classes or university classes, um, I, sometimes I would toss in uh, this old Zen koan that says, if you meet a Buddha in the road, shoot him. And that doesn't mean... I don't remember... I don't remember this, like, behind it. Go ahead. It's, yeah, so it's like, you know, you're like, it's a Zen Cohen. It's supposed to sort of trick your, your mind into thinking in some, through something in a way you haven't previously. And there's various ways it can be interpreted, but obviously you're not supposed to go and kill people. That's The idea is not to murder anybody. 
if the idea is if you see someone on the road, you run into someone and they claim to be your Buddha or your guru or what have you, that's the last person you want to trust because your your best truth is going to be found within you. You can always make a decision to follow someone else's advice, but ultimately you're the person making that decision. And so the thing that I've seen happen more and more, and I was talking about old school and, you know, decades ago, um, you know, we had guys like Vince Garanda and, of course, Joe Weider was there, and then Chad Nichols was kind of the first person to really – coach a lot of big name pros and since then i mean chad nichols is only coaching people that was just like in the 90s yeah like 25 30 years ago when he was first you know working with a lot of the big names and now everyone needs to feel like they need a coach um and so like uh, i think what may have even popped in my head before i came with the title for the book was was based on that zen cohen is be your own buddha yeah be your own bodybuilding coach why can't you um, and I think people relinquish the power that that of their own destiny in, in this endeavor um, in so many ways by just handing it over to someone to, to basically tell them what to do. And you do that to some degree almost with almost everything. We have to, you know, you have to trust even when you read research or right. you read a book like me and like mine and you click on the citations, you have to trust those people who've written those articles that are published and peer reviewed didn't just fabricate all the data. You know, you weren't actually there for every one of those thousands of studies I have cited in the book. Right, yeah. Obviously. Yeah. So you have to trust it to some degree, but it's ultimately it's up to you to make up your own mind. And I think the the nature for me, and I, I know I have said this on a couple of podcasts, is there's so much intrinsic and internal good to be had from navigating your own path and figuring out your own way. Um, I mean, imagine, imagine like this. If you, you think of just like, even how you'd see it stereotypically portrayed in a movie where, um, um, a young, or even like Star Wars, the young Padawan, you know, goes to the, uh, the Jedi Master. The Jedi Master just says, do this, do this, do this, do this, memorize this, and just re- read it back to me. Okay, you memorized it? Good. You're a Jedi. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work that way. Right. That, that, and the Jedi idea is, is based on Eastern philosophy to a large extent. It's that you have to sort of be challenged and figure out internally how to do things, and that's where the the inner reward comes from, and that's where the power comes from, so to speak, the force yeah. or what yeah. have you. That's how you control your metachlorians, wherever they are, that, that gives <laughs> the force. Um, and there's so much value that comes from that understanding, and it's just friggin' fun as well yeah. to be able to manipulate those variables and know what you're doing. Um, so I wrote that, wrote the book for people who maybe are wishing like, gosh, I wish I, you know, I wish I had a, a better ability to sort of sort through all the misinformation, just the mounds and mounds of stuff you'll find when you do Google searches. Yeah. Um, and I actually have an entire chapter. The fifth chapter in the book is, is about being a critically, a critical thinking bodybuilder. Yeah. With the idea of like, how do you sort through and figure out, um, what to believe and who to believe, you know, everything from uh, logical fallacies, strong strongman fallacies to the bro scientist to ways of knowing. We can know things because of our intuition. We know because some guru told you. We know it because you experienced it yourself. You know it because you read about it in a scientific research paper. And just to give people sort of what I've called a compass, a map, so they can, like, 
take the trip. It's like, I don't, I want to go explore the caves and the caverns on my own. I don't want to have some, some really boring, like, tour guide saying, here we have, it's like, I want to go look at it myself. I want right. to crawl into those crevices and explore and figure out. I want to get lost, you know, and that's kind of the idea of the book is not to get, allow people to get lost, but to give them a compass and kind of a guide. Um, and I, so I threw in basically the, the most extensive roadmap I could, at least at this point in time. There's other, obviously things I could add to the book and I will in the next, next edition. But to give people, uh, basically, okay, so what's over there? Oh, geez, Scott answered that question. I like that. I don't know if I, I'm not, I'm not going to necessarily swallow that idea whole. Yeah. Like I have a whole section on, on peak week. Yeah. People could do that a million one different ways. But I have a sorted out way of doing that, and it's a pretty extensive description based on human physiology. It involves no pharmaceutical diuretics. So it's like there's something that can be gleaned from that. It's up to the reader to glean whatever they want to. Um, but it's, it at least gives them a, a sort of a very a highly structured approach as a starting point, which is kind of like getting all your, your sticks in a pile. Yeah, I've yeah. a lot of sticks into a pile and like how you want to burn them and how what you want to do with them is up to you. So I thought that this was a way for me to kind of give back to as many people as I could by publishing something like this. That's awesome. So, man. That's yeah. Awesome. Um, I know I've seen you comment a little bit on Facebook, too, about that peak week section um, mm-hmm. and how you don't like to use pharmaceuticals. Could you go into why that is? Because it seems like you believe not only is it safer, but it's more effective without the pharmaceuticals. I mean, you, it can be e- at least equally as effective. I mean, I, I, you can get pretty much as dry as you want to yeah. um, once you fine-tune this. The, there are a couple of things. Um, she's, I think if you saw the Facebook post where someone, someone asked me, because I use caffeine mm-hmm. and I use herbal diuretics, and the question was something like, um, well, you know, a drug is a drug is a drug. That's the one I saw, yeah. Yeah, and I think I said, well, you know, um, morphine and nonsteroidal anti-inflammatories and lidocaine, et cetera, those are all kill pain, but they all work in, in different ways. Yeah. Um, so uh, the thing with pharmaceutical diuretics, the way they're sometimes used, I mean, sometimes people, like an old school way is to start aldactone like the Monday before a show Yeah. and load that, and you create massive rebounds in that way mm-hmm. um, and for many, many people. Um, and I think my my guess is that you can create some renal stress that can accumulate over time mm. um, because it's pretty abnormal for someone to have disturbed water homeostasis for days and days and days right. after taking some pharmaceutical diuretics. Um, so I'm guessing that there's something going on there. So that's that's sort of a medical reason that just makes me want to shy away from them. But I'm not I'm not too happy about seeing people with cankles and yeah, yeah. low back pumps they can't get rid of and and those sorts of things. Um, it's funny because I've had a few clients that the people that have it's not worked for. I had one client who had been prescribed Lasix for high blood pressure for years. Yeah, and we my system would not work with him because I, I think his his kidneys just weren't didn't function properly anymore. They'd been they'd been slowly degraded to some degree in some way from from that. Um, so that's part of it. The other is if you want to do multiple shows. Uh, well, before even that, if you want to practice your protocol, um, because of that lagging imbalance in water homeostasis, what you do during a practice run 
is not going to be what you can do like the next week. You can't do a practice run one week out and expect that you can replicate what you did then because your water homeostasis is still disturbed and you respond differently to those pharmaceutical diuretics. So it's a juggling act. Sure. And what that means for a lot of people who stress a lot week for the show is that they're trying to, they're stressing because they're trying to figure out what to take. And this is why so many people will miss their peak um, because they're stressing out and the cortisol and the stress will create an issue. And that's different than what they had the week before. Right. And then they're trying to juggle that with more pharmaceutical diuretics. A lot of times people use too much. <clears throat> I mean, really the um, guys like Paul Dillett, you know, was taken off stage. I've seen, seen this a few times in amateur shows. Guys have medical issues from the yeah. use of the pharmaceutical diuretics. And it's something, I mean, there was a, a guy who actually has passed now from something unrelated, but, um, and I have another friend who, these two guys, these two guys of both of whom I know, one I know personally, I've hung out with him in person, and the other guy was a good friend of his. Like, they both have had to rescue one another from pharmaceutical diuretic use at shows. Like, literally, I feel kind of bad, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go to the bathroom, and they sit down on the toilet, and the hip flexors cramp, and then they try to stand up, and their legs cramp, and they sit back down and their abs cramp, and next thing you know, their 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 whole body is cramping. Yeah, they can't even get up to move to get something, so they have to get them dot. They have to get them, you know, a, a Pedialyte electrolyte formula replacement or something of that nature. Right. right. Um, so you can really cause some um, acute medical issues with the pharmaceutical diuretics. Yeah. <clears throat> so you can't practice things as well. You've left yourself basically with the juggling act issue. Um, which and the stress on top of that, so those are the reasons why I don't like using it. But with with the way I've done this, you can actually peak. I've had people do it who tend to stress out a lot, um, five or six times during the course of a peak week, a course of a prep. Prep, yeah. Because they just they 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 might they might be in really good shape. One guy was in really good shape like two months out. It's really really close. So like let's just see what you look like. And I knew he tended to stress. Yeah. So he did a peak week, and then he dieted for a couple of weeks and did another one. And the way I do this, the way I structure it, almost universally everyone takes kind of a quantum leap forward in terms of conditioning. That, that sounds kind of like a plug, but it really is. The, I've done this hundreds of times now. It really works that way. So it's not like you're losing time by doing a practice peak week, but you're gaining confidence, and you're refining what you're going to do. So, like, for instance, part of the peak week, the way I've set it out to ensure that you're glycogen loaded is you, and this is a, you, you know him, of course, this is a term I stole from Ken Hill, skip, mm. yeah. um, fill and spill. So you, you carve up until you start to spill over. Um, and then you know that you've, you've got a really good idea, at least, that you've maximized your glycogen stores. But then you have cleanup. So that would be on Wednesday and Thursday, and then Friday you drop the water. So a lot of times, if someone had never done this before, they'd be like, oh, my God, I'm spilling over. Like, the show's two days away. I'm going to look like crap. This isn't going to work. Yeah. But if they practiced that, let's say they'd done it and they refined it over the years, refining things, practicing things, or they practiced, let's say, twice in the course of a prep or even just once, they're like, God, Thursday night I thought I was going to look like crap, and I looked awesome. I was full and dry on Saturday morning. So when the show comes around, they're like, I know this. I, this is, I've already been there. I've already walked this path. Right. I spilled. I don't care. I know I'm going to dry out. I just got to. I just got to connect the dots and follow the protocol. I don't have to think. Well, should I take half a diazide or a whole diazide? And should I take another one this morning? And blah blah blah. All the other things that go into that. They just you just follow the follow the the protocol. 
Right. Rather refinements you come up with, and I have that in the book as to how to change things. Yeah. And and then you can do it the next week if you want to compete multiple times. Um, there was uh someone I'm not going to say the person's name. She was um bikini competitor that I bumped into at the Olympia, and her coach um was having her. She was doing like eight shows this year, and I'm not going to spill any of the details, but she's a perfect person for whom a protocol like this works. She just wanted to dry out a little bit. She didn't do anything extreme. Definitely didn't want to have to use diuretics because they, yeah. they, they would make her feel like shit. Right. And she can do show after show after show. If you're trying to, like in that case, gather points for an Olympia qualification, or let's say you're trying to get quali- nationally qualified so you can go and do nationals or USAs, and you're in a division like that um, where you want to try to optimize your look with a peak week, you can do that again and again and again. The big caveat there, and people might be saying, like, do you even need a peak week? You don't need a peak week. Yeah. At all. For many, many cases. If you're absolutely in shape, then you shouldn't have to do a whole heck of a lot. Maybe drop your water the night before or something like that. But as it turns out, it's one of those things people want to do something. Sometimes it's just like, I, you know, I could almost say, you know, all right, so Tuesday, when you wake up, I want you to recite the alphabet backwards five times, okay? And and that's going to turn on anti-diuretic hormone. And <laughs> you could make – as long as they have something to do to occupy their mind, it wouldn't yeah. matter. So this is something that actually makes physiological sense. It's kind of fun. It's kind mm-hmm. of a cool little puzzle for a lot of people. Right. And, and it occupies them. So it's better than just waiting for the impending uh, show, which is stressful in a lot of cases. Sure, sure. Um, yeah. I like that you kind of touched on uh, not only the effectiveness, but there's that health aspect. And, of course, you know, you yeah. work somewhere in the health field yourself. And so um, your book touches on a lot of different health aspects as well. And for things that are mentioned nutritionally, like probiotics and like a low FODMAP diet, uh, and you even go into organic and, and that whole deal, um, what advantages do you think things like that have for people who are really just trying to look look their best? And I think we should all care about health, but I, I think that even for those who don't care a ton about health, they should still focus on that. So could you explain a little bit on that? I had a sense you would mention the low FODMAP diet because we we talked about gut health so much. Yeah. Um, little, I mean, the global answer to that is how you look is going to be a function of what's going on internally. Um, so, for instance, I mean, who knows? Like, Phil might have, like I mentioned, I'm not saying that he does or doesn't, but he, there might be some gut dysbiosis there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't have, I have no idea how Hani diets him down, what they eat, what have you. Um, but there's someone I'm working with right now who's got, who's had to go to a low FODMAP diet and he gets, you know, if he eats too much carbohydrate, um, even of a low FODMAP variety, he tends to have issues. So we have to be very, very careful with that. And this person, you know, a, a, the larger midsection is a, is an issue for him potentially. Yeah. So, like, that's an obvious, like, aesthetic piece right there. Um, I mean, there could be things, if you've got some malabsorption, you would know that. You would see the food in your in your stool and things of that nature. Um, but that certainly is not helping. How you feel, especially when you diet down, is going to impact how hard you can train and what you're willing to do in the gym. Um I mean, I've, uh, one of my uh, old buddies used to say, you know, he's like, oh, he would just convince himself during prep, I just need to be a badass for an hour a day. 
<laughs> and the rest of the time I can just be a whiny bastard and, you know, complain or whatever. But he said, when I get in the gym, I just need to be able to turn it on. And he could do that. He loved to train really hard. Um, big deadlifter, you know, sort of an almost a guy when it came to that. So, but if you feel awful, um, because you've got, maybe you've got some toxicity. Um, I mean, the organic thing is, uh, we haven't quite got to the point where we've reduced all those all those potential toxins. That's such a complex topic. Right. Yeah. But um, if you've got some toxicity, and of course, if we go to the topic of people that are using PEDs that are creating toxicity, then many of those cases they've already got a toxic load. Right. And they may feel like crap if they're at, if they added oral steroids, let's say during the last six weeks, and they're starting to feel awful. Then you can't train as hard. And you want to be able to train as hard as you possibly can. You can't recover as well. Recovery is at an absolute premium. If you can't sleep, well, there goes your recovery there. So yeah. you can end up in a downward spiral. Um, and that happens a lot of times to guys who try to do multiple shows is they've already kind of talked, they're already toxed out. Maybe their diet has also become, um, I mean, you'll know who I'm talking about when I think of this, but. You know, people become, they go on sort of food jags, which makes sense to a certain degree because you want to have tight control of your macronutrient intake, but yeah. you're only eating the same things again and again and again. So the variety of, of flourishing in your microbiome is going to be pretty poor mm-hmm. when, you're, when you're not eating any probiotic foods unless you're supplementing there. So right. you can run into some issues there with variety. You're not, you're not, there's a, a reason beyond just, um, caloric insufficiency why our body tends to tends to like some variety in our food yeah after a while you just get tired of eating things and there's probably some micronutrients and phytonutrients and things there that that are are beneficial for us health wise phytonutrients i cover that various ways in the book yep um have all sorts of phenomenal properties we're sort of we're sort of been bioengineered by evolution um, to be responsive to herbs and all the wonderful chemicals that, for instance, activate the NRF2 pathway and increase our antioxidant capacity. So if you get into a situation, let's say, where someone doesn't tend to like vegetables, they've got, um, they don't take any probiotic foods in, uh, they're eating maybe a high FODMAP diet, they've got a toxic load from the drugs they're using, um, and Combine all that, and then they feel like crap, and they go in the gym and they half half ass it. Now you have someone who's and they're stressed, yeah. so they hold water. They have a distended belly. They're losing muscle mass more than they would because they can't train hard, and then they've got a, a toxic overload, um, which isn't helping really anywhere. Right. So right. yeah, you've got a, like a, a an un, unfortunate synergy that I think can happen um, as you diet down. At least that's the pre-contest story. Sure. So a lot of people, it's, I mean, it's shown that nowadays more and more people have gut issues and autoimmune issues. Um, and I've seen actually for inflammatory reasons, some people will take CBD oil. Uh, it's becoming kind of a, a new thing nowadays. And you talk about that a little bit in the book, as well as adaptogens and different recovery methods. Um, could you go into that? Because I think CBD oil is kind of newer for a lot of people. Yeah, that one's taken off, right? Yeah. Um, so there's two cannabinoid receptors, one, CBD, the C, the cannabinoid receptor one and rep, receptor two. Uh, the CBD oil 
only binds to two, so you don't have any of the psychogenic, psychoactive effects there that you'll get from marijuana. Um, but there's a, lo- a decent amount of animal work, and I cover this in the book, um, looking at the analgesic effects and an- anti-inflammatory effects. They haven't ironed out all these pathways. Right. Um, some of them involve NF-kappa beta, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, um, and COX enzymes. But, uh, and you see things like, um, reduction in inflammation at the joints when they've created an arth- like rheumatoid arthritis models in, in rodents. Um, but also you can get sort of a systemic effect even with just like a transdermal application. Yeah. So, um, it's funny because, because it's new and novel, people are like, oh, this is cool. We, we like to play with new things. I don't blame them, you know. And there's potential sleep benefits. Um, that sort of thing from the CBD oil. I actually tried a product that I was given. I mentioned this on the Muscle Minds podcast. You, you may have heard this. I don't know. Oh, I, and, see, I don't know if I heard that one. Yeah, I had an adverse effect. It may have been totally in my head. I didn't have the sense I was expecting this. But I had, when I was years ago, when I, actually when I was in Amsterdam, so this was totally legal, yeah, I didn't have. A, I had some space cakes, and I did not have a good um, experience at all. It was yeah. awful, really, really bad. Could have been laced. Could have been too much. I'm not sure. Um, but me and THC don't seem to get along, from what I've what I've been able to figure out. Mm. And so I shouldn't have had any issues with this. It was a little gummy bear product, um, and according to their label claims, there was it was completely pure. 100% CBD oil, blah, 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 which I kind of find almost hard to believe. It was like it was like a perfect um, label, but yeah. I took it, and I got anxiety. I had this sense of kind of claustrophobia, high anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. I may be an outlier. I'm not sure. Um, but a lot of people are finding those other benefits may be there, and anything that can reduce our stress is, is probably a good thing. But what we, what I don't know, and this is some of this is my lack of knowledge because I haven't dug into this. It's one of those bodies of literature that's kind of scattered all over the place, and a lot yeah. of work and even some in vitro stuff um, is exactly what the anti-inflammatory actions are. Exactly what's going on um, second with the second messenger system and the signaling when you're binding the cannabinoid receptors, at least okay. in terms of CBD. So. The thing that I mentioned, and I think I think this kind of applies applies globally, and this would depend somewhat upon what mechanisms are are uh, in effect here, is that when we're talking about training, we're talking about stimuli that promote adaptation. The whole point is to have stress. We're creating inflammation. We're creating an inflammatory stress. Right. And I have a big section on hormesis and the hormetic stimulus, and this is this is the idea of sort of a, an inverse U phenomenon where you can kind of optimize the amount of stress to give the best stimulus to promote an adaptation. In this case, we're thinking muscle growth. Right. Um, and if you fall on either side of that optimal level, um, you don't get an optimal adaptation. So you have too much stress, you don't get an adaptation. It's basically degradative. It's, it would break down. You would not recover from that. The stress is excessive. The free radical stress is too high. There's too much inflammation. Um, and you see this, for instance, when you give like antioxidants, like megadosing vitamin C and vitamin E, 
Right. <clears throat> you can prevent the, the adaptations in skeletal muscle in terms of insulin sensitivity, mitochondrial biogenesis, those sorts of things. Because there's something about that free radical stress. Right. Um, and I mean, literally, you're, you're, when, when you have increased oxidative phosphorylation, you're producing superoxide radicals. Like every time you increase the energy demand, energy supply in a cell, in a muscle cell, you produce free radicals. It's almost like the free radicals are, it's like the heat coming off the engine. Right. And that heat is, is part of the signal that says, okay, we need to make this engine better. Um, by producing more mitochondria in this particular example. Yeah. So if you give vitamin C, like a gram of vitamin C and, a, and 400 IUs of vitamin E um, around that exercise time, you can blunt that free radical stress, and then you blunt the exercise adaptation. Right, right. Um, same thing seems to hold with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, but there's a, a study that, um, that Trappy did at Ball State, which is pretty cool with older folks, but they actually found giving a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory, they were increased muscle. Right. Yeah. yeah. And my, my guess is that some of that has to do with, they, they broke it down into um, some biological mechanisms, but some of it I think probably has to do with optimizing the hormetic stress such that older folks are more, um, some of what the loss of strength and muscle mass with aging is due to age per se, and some of it's due to inactivity. Yeah. Maybe 50-50, it's hard to know um, exactly. Probably obviously depends on the person, yeah. how much they've lost. But older muscle is more susceptible to muscle damage. So if you could limit the, the damage-induced inflammation, right, you could optimize the growth. And that's what it seemed like happened there. And um, I can't remember. I have so many conversations. I, I mix up whether they're on a podcast or not. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I think this was actually just someone I was chatting with the other day. Uh, an old school power lifter told me years ago, um, one of the things they used to do, uh, when you get close to a meet, they'd have like, uh, like two or three weeks out, like their last crazy training day. And, and these guys would meet in the gym, like block the gym off and crank the heavy metal and just go to town and do like, you know, just heavy singles of squats and deads. We're talking like 18, 20 heavy singles, stuff that would just destroy you. Right. Like Soar everywhere. But they would load up on aspirin. They take like a handful of aspirin beforehand to try to blunt all that inflammation, and that way they could they 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 reduced the the blunt trauma, so to speak, brought on by all the high, those high intensity contractions yeah. reduced the inflammation. But they got the neurological practice effect, so they got to they got to get away with doing twenty singles and right. just knuckleheads too, which is partly what they wanted to do. So. Um, for them, all that training was would have been excessive, especially if they're trying to put on muscle mass. They weren't caring so much about that at that point in time. Right. But they needed to do that um, to basically shift the stress, the hormetic stress, into something that was more reasonable. So load up on the anti-inflammatories because they loaded up on the training. Both were in excess, but they balanced one another, so to speak. So back to CBD oil. Um, that's my thought there is, and, and th I mean, there are not a lot of people who say, man, I started taking aspirin and my gains just went away. Right, right. It's not an obvious effect. It's almost like a theoretical one and one you might look into for someone who's not making progress in the way they want to. 
Thank you guys for watching part one of my interview with Scott Stevenson. We ended up talking for a while, and so I thought it would be best to break it up into two parts. So look out for that, where we will finish talking about his book, as well as some other interesting topics like the placebo effect. Uh, if you like the charity that we're going to be donating to, the Animal Shelter, please also feel free to make your own donation down below.